Well, it's good to be back after having to be out last Sunday. That was a weird day. Uh, it just kind of didn't feel right, and the whole week didn't feel right because of uh, not having been here with you to worship on Sunday morning. Uh, we tried a few other things and ended up watching a, on, the, on the Internet a little short sermon from uh, North Carolina, Durham, North Carolina, and that uh, was nice but it wasn't at all the same. So all this foolishness about being able to just sit home and worship by TV or radio or, or whatever, that's, a, that's just not right. It just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't, it doesn't meet the need of fellowship with the body and being together. So it's good to be back. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the second chapter of Hebrews as we begin this chapter this morning, looking at verses 1 through 4. Today we're going to talk about the danger of drifting from the word and uh, what the writer here gives some clear instruction about and some very serious and somber warning about. Now, he starts out with these verses with for this reason and so uh, understand that is, a, uh, that is a connecting phrase, a connecting statement, connecting it back to the string of Old Testament passages that we looked at two weeks ago when we looked at the fact that the Hebrew writer, Hebrews writer is saying that Jesus is more important than, he is above, he is greater than the angels. And so we, we need to understand that this is continuing that thought, that the revelation brought in Jesus Christ, the revelation brought by the very Son, is greater than the revelation that was mediated by angels, uh, as, as is talked about somewhat in the Old Testament related to the law. The angels ministered there on the mountain with Moses when the law was given. And so we continue that thought. You know, one of the things that struck me after that sermon two weeks ago was just uh, how grateful I am in many ways, well, for a lot of things, but how grateful I am for our children's ministry and our youth ministry. Uh, you know, after we uh, got to, after I made my error in the sermon, I, I don't know if you remember that or not. I hope you adults caught it. Uh, some of the kids did. I made the statement talking about the angels, and I said, the angels are eternal beings. And then I corrected that. I caught my own misstatement and said, no, they're not really eternal beings. They're everlasting beings. They will live forever. They're, they don't die, and they're not new angels being born or whatever, but, but they are everlasting in that they live on, but they're not eternal beings because they have a beginning. They are created beings. And when I said that in the erroneous part, uh, several of our children looked at their parents and said, that's not right. Now these are second and third graders, you know, that's not right. Some of you probably sat there and thought, oh, eternal, yeah, okay. You know, I'll be honest with you, our children, and I'm talking about now just through sixth grade, probably have a greater grasp and understanding of theological truth than I had when I entered seminary. Maybe even when I had when I exited seminary, I'm not sure, but I know they have a greater understanding of it than when I entered seminary because they're taught the word and they're taught the concepts. They're taught the truth of God's word. I was taught a lot of Bible stories. I mean, I, I could tell you all the stories you want to know. I could tell you about David and Goliath. I could tell you about walking, Jesus walking on water. I could tell you about feeding 5,000. I mean, I could tell you the stories, but telling the underlying theological doctrinal truths of those stories, I didn't have a clue, even into my adulthood. And so I am so grateful to God that Brother Scott, Brother Todd, 
are teaching our children and our youth the absolute solid foundation of God's Word. That is so important. So mom and dad, if you have some questions, just ask your kids. They can probably answer them for you, all right? They can even correct the pastor sometimes when he is wrong. Hear the word of the Lord as we see what the writer says in this particular four verses. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. This is the word of our Lord. This is the word of God. We want to talk about this morning the danger of drifting. The danger of drifting from the word, the gospel, the truth that was spoken by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, and in Jesus Christ into the world, God's final revelation of himself, if you will, that great salvation, so great a salvation, the writer says, that we must pay heed to it. We must pay even closer attention to it than we have in the past. There are several things that come about looking at this, and these are just brief observations before we get into the meat of it. I want you to see that in verse 1, the writer here talks about the importance of this word. He said we must pay closer, much closer attention to what we've heard. In other words, the word of God and the gospel is not just something that we casually approach. There is an importance to the gospel, that is, that we must concentrate on it. We must meditate on it. We must pay close attention to it, to every detail, to every facet of it, to every aspect of it in every area of our life. This great gospel that is spoken through Jesus Christ is not just a word to, quote, get you saved. It's not just a word, quote, to get you to walk an aisle or join a church or be baptized and, and then the gospel is over. This gospel message is a message that permeates every area of our life from beginning to end. It's a gospel that we must pay close attention to and pay heed to every day of our life, every, evident, every, every waking hour of our life. We must see the gospel as central, as important. That's what this writer is saying here. There is an importance to what we've heard. There is importance to the gospel that we must pay much closer attention to. Now, it would seem to me that the reason he would say something like that is because there were some Christians there, and these are second-generation Christians. These are, uh, he makes clear that we heard it through those who heard the Lord. These are not people who heard the words of Christ. And there was some danger in the second generation Christians, evidently, that they were just kind of casually taking the gospel. Oh, yeah, I believe the gospel. I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I'm, I believe in that. That's all well and good. But the writer says the gospel is not something that we just casually approach. The gospel, the word of Christ, the revelation of God in Christ, is something that we have to dwell on. We pay attention to, we observe it, and we concentrate on it at all times. There's the importance of this word. There is the authority of the word. 
in verses 2 and the first part of verse 3 said that if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, then how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord? The writer here says, don't you understand that the old covenant mediated by the angels was unchangeable. It was unalterable. It was, you, you didn't play with it. You didn't say, well, I don't like this commandment. I don't like that commandment. I want to I be able to break this one and still live. I want to be able to disobey this one and, and still be okay. He said, no, the old law mediated through the angels, spoken through the angels, was an unalterable, unchangeable thing. And every transgression of it and every disobedience of it, it received its just penalty. That is, separation. That is destruction. That is a break in any relationship with the living God. What we might call hell. The violation of any part of the law, no matter how small one might see it, had its just penalty because breaking that law was unacceptable before a holy God. Tonight in, in Galatians, we're going to talk a little more about holiness and what that means. So I hope you'll be here as we study that together. So there's the importance of it. There's the authority of it. It's spoken by Christ. The old law was unalterable, but we have now what is spoken through Jesus Christ. It has a greater authority and a more binding authority than even the old covenant did. Then we have the delivery of it. In the last part of verse 3, it was delivered through the Lord and confirmed to us by those who heard it. Christ spoke it, the apostles heard it, they went out and preached it, and they confirmed it to each one. And it was confirmed then by miracles and signs and wonders and all sorts of things done through the apostles, what the writer of Acts, Luke, calls the signs of the apostles. As they went into new territory, new ground was broken, barriers were broken down with the gospel, and it was confirmed by miracles. It was confirmed by signs and wonders as it went into new areas, into the Gentiles, to the Samaritans, and various places. It didn't happen every time they went. It wasn't the norm. It was an exceptional thing when new barriers were broken down by the Lord, but it was confirmed. So in these four verses, you have... You have those words, the importance, the authority, and the delivery of it. You also have the words of Christ, the gospel of Christ, and the judgment of Christ that comes into that. I want to really concentrate on just a couple of things here this morning as we think about it and hope to make application of it in our own lives. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. Now, what does it mean typically to a person when they talk about coming to Christ? What kind of close attention is paid? Generally, in our day and time, you'll hear the phrase, you know, this person, I or you or, or somebody we've talked to and shared the gospel with have accepted Christ. Now, understand accepted Christ is not a biblical term, really. It's really not. That's, that's one that we've kind of let get into our vocabulary it's kind of become the norm of things oh well it's almost like you know I'm walking down the street and I'm just thinking about what I ought to do and I, oh well I'll accept Christ I heard well I didn't hear because he died in about 1560 but I, I read one old uh, Puritan writer who said the, the issue is not so much whether we accept Christ but whether Christ accepts us that's the real issue of the matter 
Do we come to him in the right way? Do we come to him as he has commanded? Do we come to him in the approved way of the scripture, thus him accepting us? Not so much us just saying, oh, well, I'll accept Christ. In the Thessalonian letter, the apostle Paul wrote to those Thessalonians, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm excited about you because you've done two things. You have turned to God, and you've turned to God from idols. You have turned to God in Jesus Christ. You have trusted Christ. That's a good biblical term. You put your faith in Christ. That's a good biblical term. Much better than accepted Christ. But you've turned to him. You have turned to God through Christ. And you've turned away from idols in order to serve the living and the true God. There's a lot of power in those, that little verse. A lot of truth in that little verse about what it means to really be saved. To what, re what it really means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I have a, an acquaintance, I won't call him a friend, but he's a pastor down in, in Nashville, Tennessee, that I read him and, and listen to him every now and then. And, and last week he wrote something uh, that I found quite interesting. It was a little article that said, what does it mean to accept Jesus? And that, that's a good question to ask. And he talked about in this article how human beings are not uh, integrated, unified, whole persons. But rather in our hearts, that, that our hearts are multi-divided. There's all sorts of things going on in our hearts. I don't mean in the blood pump. I don't mean in that part that you know you, you listen to with a stethoscope or check out on a, 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 a cardiogram. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the heart, the center of the being, the, the very central part of your life. And he said the heart of man, the center heart of man is really a very multifaceted, multi-divided thing. He said as a matter of fact, he used this analogy and I liked it. He said there is a boardroom in every single one of our lives. A boardroom. He said the boardroom is, is complete. said it's got a big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, whiteboard, and a committee sits around the table and discusses. He said the committee is made up of the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and probably others in your life as you so divide it up. And all, of these, all this time, the committee is arguing and debating and voting. Sounds like a Baptist heart, doesn't it? You know, they're, they're sitting around, they're debating, they're discussing, and they're voting on what they want to do and making decisions that way. Constantly agitated and upset. Uh, finally, rarely really, do they ever come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. We tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy with so many responsibilities. The truth is we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, and unfree. We're slaves to our own internal committee. Says, Here's what happens in many people's lives. And I think I see this happening a lot. There's the kind of person who can accept Jesus in, in really one of two ways. First of all, one way is to, to invite Jesus into the committee. You give him a place at the table. You give him a voice in your life to some degree. And you even give him a vote. And Jesus sits around the committee table and he argues with the, the social self and he argues with the religious self and he argues with the, the work self and, and comes up and finally the vote comes and he's got one vote among all the other votes and, and he just kind of has a place. There are a lot of people who that's how they come to Christ. They say, Lord, I want you to come into my life and I want you to have a say, but Lord, I don't want you to get too pushy. I don't want you to demand too much. 
I don't want you to expect too much out of me because I got all these other selves that are demanding my time and demanding my attention. And so, Lord, come on in, become a part of the committee, and serve on the committee of my life. One thing about that, doesn't work. There's no real salvation in that. There's religiosity. There's playing religious games. There's upstandingness in the community, perhaps. There's no real change. There's no real conversion. There's no real salvation. The other way is to look at your own life and look at Christ and say, Lord, my life isn't working. Please come in and fire my committee. Every last one of them. I hand myself over to you. Please run my whole life for me. Please show me your will and give me the power and strength to do it. Now that's not complicated. That's not complication. That's conversion. That's salvation. That's the reality of having Jesus Christ not as a part of your life, but having Jesus Christ as your Lord. Because you see, accepting Jesus, as we put it in our terminology today, again, not a biblical terminology, but terminology we use, accepting Jesus is not just asking and adding Jesus to our life, but it's also adding Jesus and subtracting idols. Pushing the idols, letting him push the idols out. The idols that would demand, the idols that would seek to destroy, the idols that seek to run our life in directions that are contrary to who Jesus Christ is. The writer goes on and he says, that's what the gospel is. That's the spoken word. Jesus never came to be part of your life. He never came to be an addition to your life. He came to be Lord of your life. He came to be your salvation. He came to be your redeemer. He came to make a change that is revolutionary and radical in everything you do and everything you are. Folks, he came to take over. He didn't come just to have a vote. So the writer says here in verse 2, if the word spoken through angels was unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received its just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What does he mean by neglecting so great a salvation? Now, there's some who look at this and they'll say, well, uh, he's warning you, you better be careful, you're going to lose your salvation. I don't think he is at all. I think Jesus made clear, and Peter made clear, and Paul made clear that salvation results in eternal life. I think he made clear that eternal life is not life that stops and starts. It is eternal life. It begins and it never ends. If the power of God has done that work in your life. I believe Peter makes clear when he says in 1 Peter that we are kept, not by our own good deeds, not by our own strength, but we are kept by the power of God. That there is a security there that we will never be lost again because God secures us. God does it. But I'm convinced that he only does it in the life of the one who is that second type person that, that Ray Ortland's talking about, not the first type person. Because you see, I think inviting Jesus in just to be a part of the committee is neglecting so great a salvation. 
saying that I just want you to come in and have a say. I want you to give some advice. I want you to come in and, and be a part, but not a big part, is not salvation at all. That's just being religious. That's just saying, oh, I like Christianity better than I like Islam, or I like Christianity better than I like Buddhism, or I like Christianity better than I like Judaism, whatever you want to place in that blank. And so what he's saying here is, he's saying, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? A salvation that changes hearts, a salvation that changes life, a salvation that gives eternal life, that lasts forever in the presence of Almighty God. A salvation that brings about adoption into the family of God. Salvation that brings about not only forgiveness of sins, but the giving of Christ's righteousness into our account. How can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And his anticipated answer is we can't. Can't escape it. Can't get away from it. There was just penalties in the Old Testament for breaking the law. And there is just penalties for neglecting and rejecting so great a salvation. Some say, well, maybe it's just talking about somebody who kind of toys with it and then walks away. Maybe it's somebody who just, you know... Uh, was passing by and they heard the gospel and they said, eh, not for me. I don't think so. Remember, they're right, the, the writer here is writing to a group of believers, a church, that has trusted Christ, has been baptized, has become a church body, and they are now together and undergoing great persecution because of their faith. Now, you and I don't know anything about persecution. It might drive us to fire the committee if we were undergoing persecution. It might push us to the point of saying, my social self and my work self and my sexual self and my other selves really have, have no clue to what's going on. I need somebody to come in, fire them, and take charge and, and do my life as it needs to be done. Persecution might cause us to see our need for a Lord, not just an advisor. Which sadly many people sitting in our churches every day are looking at Jesus like he's just an advisor. He didn't come to be an advisor. He came to be a savior. He didn't come to be a part of the, a part of the discussion. He came to dictate the discussion. He came to determine the discussion. He came to determine the direction. So how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I think there's another dimension of this also. It, it's not explicitly stated here. And maybe I'm playing a little eisegesis this morning instead of exegesis, but I'll do it anyway. And that is, I think there is a, an understanding here from the believer's perspective that there is a great penalty for those who neglect this salvation. There is what the scripture describes as hell. There is an eternal punishment. It's, it's a horrible place. I mean, it's, it's a place where there is no satisfaction. There is no, uh, there is no uh, pleasure. It, it's described in Scripture as being like fire and brimstone, like burning, like, like the most horrible thing that we can imagine. And I, you know, people ask me all the time, do you think there's a literal fire in heaven? I, say, I don't know if it's a literal fire or not, but I'll tell you one thing. If it's not a literal fire, it's worse than a literal fire. And that was just all that God could use that we would understand as being really, 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 really bad. And he said, that's about as much as you can understand about it. 
But those who reject the gospel, those who don't come to Jesus Christ, that's what awaits them. Now I know we live in a more sophisticated day than that and, and we live in a more politically correct day where we believe everybody's really going to be saved ultimately, at least our culture does. You know, we can listen to, to I, I love political, you, you read my Grace Notes article this week, you know that I observed some political religious speech this past week and, and I was all, I'm always amazed when politicians try to, try to be spiritual or give spiritual advice or spiritual counsel and and it always comes out we're all brothers it's the brotherhood of man and it's the fatherhood of God for all people and we all serve the same holy and, and awesome and loving God and and we've played this God thing up to where God is exclusively love and nothing else you know I mean let's face it most people you run into if you talk to them about their salvation if you talk to them about the gospel one of the very first objections is well I just can't believe that a loving God would punish anybody you know that's that's kind of the standard objection in our culture why if God is really a loving God I just can't believe he would send anyone to hell I just can't believe that he would take disobedience to him so seriously that he would punish anybody for disobeying him and, and my God would never do that and of course the best comeback to that is well your God may not but the God will the living in the true God that, that the Thessalonians turned to to serve and to worship the living and the true God turning to him from idols because you see much of what we have today is idols even much of those who talk about God they're talking about an idol they're talking about a false God they're talking about a God of their own imagination the only God we really know can have any assurance of is the God that is re revealed in his word by Jesus Christ and so the writer here says there is a danger of drifting. There's a danger of, of not paying attention to and thus drifting away from the word, drifting away from an understanding of the gospel. We have to be careful that we have not so loosely tied our lives to Jesus Christ in just making him a part of our life, not making him our life, that we've just sort of loosely tied ourselves to him and like a boat that can work itself loose, we've just started drifting away because there is no firm mooring in our life. The only firm mooring, the only firm standing, the only protection from drifting to see what a great salvation it is what so great a salvation it is and we can't neglect it we can't drift from it we can't deny it because Jesus Christ has lashed us to it by his grace and by his power and by his strength not our strength by his purpose, not our purpose. Or as, as the writer says at the end of verse 4, that he's, he's testified to it, he's demonstrated it, he's shown it to us by the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now I understand, I understand that salvation is of the Lord. I understand that salvation comes by his grace being applied to a person's life by the Holy Spirit. I understand that salvation comes by the call of God. But let me tell you something, folks. That is no excuse. 
to not be diligent in, in taking this salvation, taking this gospel that we have been given and taking it to our world and to our neighborhood and to our family and to our friends. I mean, I understand that that God is the one who saves. I look at Lydia in the, in the book of Acts and I see that it says there that Lydia heard the word and the Lord opened her eyes and opened her heart and she believed it was a work of the Lord. I understand that, but the, but the Lord used Paul to share the gospel and then God opened her heart and her eyes and God uses us to do that, to speak the word. What about your family member that's not a believer? What do you believe about them? They've never trusted Christ. They have no desire for the things of God. But boy, they're a good person, as we would determine that. Do we look at them like so many non-believers look at one another and say, well, you're a good person. Surely God will take care of you because you're really a good person. You're a nice person. Or do we look at them as one that is bound for hell? unless they come to a point of seeing Jesus Christ as Lord. How do we look at our neighbors? Do we look at our neighbors and say, well, you know, they're, they're good people and, and I don't want to offend them by talking to them about Jesus. You know, they might be offended by that. Well, what are you going to offend them into? A deeper hell? No. I'll never forget, I think I've told, if you haven't heard this, if you have, just listen anyway. I'll never forget sitting on an airplane back in, must have been about 1999 or 2000. And I sat down next to a guy and we were on one of those uh, two-seaters on each side, Canada Air Jets, you know, where you're, you're really sitting next to the person you're sitting next to. And so he sits down and, and you know, he, he was a talker and he said, well, what are you... Or do you live here in Louisville? And I said, no, I'm just here for a meeting. He said, oh, really? Where are you from? I said, well, I'm from Orlando. Oh, Orlando, going back? Yeah, I'm going back home. What are you doing here in Louisville? Well, I was here for a trustee meeting. You know, I'm just kind of, I really wanted to be reading, to be honest with you. They had my book open, and I really was disobedient to Christ, I realized, but I was reading my book, and I wanted to read it. And he said, oh, really? What kind of trustee meeting? I said, oh, well, I'm a trustee at, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he went, oh. And I said, oh? He said, yeah, that president there, that school, they, he, he hates my people. And I said, he hates your people? Well, now, my, now i got to put my book down. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'm Jewish. And that president there hates Jewish people. And I said, really? How does he hate Jewish? I know Al Mohler. I know he loves Jewish people. I said, how does he hate? He said, well, he believes we have to come to Christ to have a relationship with God. And I said, oh, and that means he hates you? Yeah, he hates us because he thinks if we don't become Christians, then we can't, we can't be in heaven. And I said, well, that's interesting. I said, you know, if, if Dr. Mohler were your neighbor and your house were burning down, and you were asleep in your bedroom. And he were to just look over there and see your house burning and say, you know, I, it's, it's 2 o'clock in the morning and, and my neighbor's asleep and he's getting his rest and I, I, I just really love him so much I'm not going to disturb him because I love him so much. 
Would that be loving you? And he said, I don't understand. I said, wouldn't it be more loving if he came over and beat on your door and broke out windows and screamed and yelled and blew horns and, and did everything he could to get your attention, to get you out of the house because you were about to die? Well, yeah, I guess it would be. I said, well, if, if Al Mohler believes the Christian doctrine that it is only by faith in Christ that salvation comes, does it not make sense that he loves you more because he sees you going to a fire that's far greater than your house being on fire if you don't come to Christ and he loves you so much that he wants you to see that and he wants you to believe that and he wants to present that truth to you and he wants you not to neglect so great a salvation? Doesn't that make sense that he loves you more by doing that than by neglecting you? And he said, well, I got work to do. And he pulled out his briefcase and he didn't talk to me the rest of the way. Folks, what do we believe about this salvation? What do we believe about neglecting this salvation? I believe that God has called us to share the gospel with every single person on this earth. We'll all believe, according to Scripture, they won't. Do we have the power to convince them, to argue with them, to, to make them believe? Absolutely not. But do we have the privilege of being the messengers of the Holy Spirit? Do we have the, the privilege of being the one who can speak and let the Holy Spirit do his work as we speak? Has God given us that privilege as well as that calling? I believe absolutely he has. And I believe there's no hope for anybody that does not come to Jesus Christ. That's not Bill Haynes talking. That's what the Word of God says. That's what the Gospel says. And there's no hope for the good person. There's no hope for the bad person apart from Christ. There's no hope for the religious person, be they Buddhist, Jewish, Islamic, whatever, unless they come by Jesus Christ. And, and if we neglect so great a salvation, if we neglect to share it, and if we neglect to believe it, and if we neglect to say, Lord, my life is just not working. Come in, fire the committee, take over, run it. Control it. If we neglect so great a salvation, how great, how great is what we cannot escape. How horrendous is what we cannot escape. Christ spoke it. The apostles confirmed it. God is testifying to it. He has testified to it through miracles and signs and wonders and the Holy Spirit according to his own will. But he's called us to quit playing boardroom, to quit playing committee, and to say, Lord, the committee fails. But Lord God, you never fail. You never fail. Let's pray.
Father, there is a danger of drifting from your word because if we drift, we're probably not tied to it by your power. If we drift, it's probably because we've allowed the committee to try to run our life. Father, there is no salvation in some kind of nebulous accepting of Jesus that doesn't turn from idols. There's no salvation in some kind of nebulous accepting Jesus that doesn't have you radically change that life. Lord, spare us from empty religion. Spare us from being a good Baptist but not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. Father, protect us from drifting from the Word. Keep our hearts focused. Keep our minds focused on the Gospel. It changes our life. Both the day we come to Christ and the day we end this life the gospel is still operative in the life of the believer. Father, do your work in your way for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.